Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We get to do some cool interviews and discussions and conversations on the American Shoreline Podcast, Tyler. And uh, this is going to be one of those shows. I'm really, really excited that we finally are having back on the, on the show, Peter Neal, who is the founder and the director of the World Ocean Observatory, an amazing organization and one of the great resources on ocean and coastal issues. Uh, so much to talk about with Peter Neal and looking forward to a fabulous conversation today. Me too, Peter. And, uh, you know, Peter Neal's voice is, is familiar to ASPN listeners. Uh, he, of course, has been a guest before on our show, uh, Peter, but also uh, starting, I don't know, probably about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, we launched on ASPN uh, the World Ocean Radio. And on World Ocean Radio, you can hear Peter's, Peter Neal's voice every single week. Every Saturday, we drop a new episode of that show. And it is awesome. So uh, we wanted to have Peter Neal on to talk a little bit about what he's talking about on World Ocean Radio and also spitball some of the some of the important ideas and topics and concepts that we're thinking about, Peter. And so I'm really excited about this conversation today. Peter Neal is one of those guys that always tries to interconnect and see the interconnection between all of the different elements of the coast. And that's, yes. you know, that's what makes the, the ocean and coast so freaking interesting to me is all the interconnection. So I just always enjoy talking to Peter Neal. Yeah, one of the great thinkers, I think, on ocean and coastal issues internationally and has been for more than 20 years. This is the 20th anniversary of the World Ocean Observatory founding, World Ocean Explorer, as the, one of the more recent projects. So uh, it's going to be a great show, Tyler. Looking forward to it, but first... A word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Peter Neal, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. Absolutely a privilege and an honor to have you back on the show. Uh, well, the privilege and honor is reciprocated. Lovely. Well, Peter, we're looking at, you know, today uh, when we're recording this show, I believe is the 20th anniversary of the founding of uh, the World Ocean Observatory. And uh, you've been at this for 20 years, two decades, and monumental achievement uh, given the quality and the character of the work that you do and the information you make available. Introduce our audience for those who are not familiar with your with the founding and the, and the purpose of the World Ocean Observatory? Well, it's hard for me to believe that it's 20 years. Uh, it's part of a personal reinvention. Some 20 years ago, I left one career uh, and decided I was going to take this project because it 
it gave me the sense of responsibility and obligation as a citizen uh, to to deal with one of the most important egregious situations on earth pertaining directly to human survival, which is the essentially the understanding and the sustainability of the world ocean. Um, the story of its origin is 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 odd. Um, it was a it was a sleeting day in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I didn't have a raincoat or an umbrella, and I ducked into a used bookstore uh, to get out of the wet. And at the dollar bin, I found this book called "The Ocean: Our Future." I picked it up, opened it up, paid my buck, uh, and my whole life changed. Uh, because that was the report in 1998 of an independent commission on the future of the ocean that was chaired by Mario Suarez, the former uh, uh, president of Portugal, a statesman um, who brought together independent, not UN, uh, independent commission of experts from around the world, and they created a plan which I believe is still the most prescient and um, uh, wise uh, way of looking at how we're going to essentially meet the challenge of uh, the last great natural system on earth without which we will not survive. Um, the uh, I did some due diligence with some people in the ocean world, Bob Gagosian at Woods Hole then, Julie Packard at, at, Mon at Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, uh, the chairman of the UN Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, uh, Patricio Bernal. And I asked them, could I as a nobody take this on? And they didn't say no. Um, so I took that as a provocation that they meant yes. Uh, and with no resources, no staff, no overhead, no office, we began. And in that report, the pre preemptive uh, recommendation was that there be a web-based place of exchange for responsible science and educational service about the ocean defined as, and this is the key point, an integrated global social system. So it transcends the conventional focus on species and habitat, and it looks to, uh, to integrate um, all aspects of the ocean, which includes climate, freshwater, food, energy, health, trade, transportation, policy, governance, um, uh, finance, and cultural traditions. There is no aspect of human civilization that has not been unified and connected through the marine environment. We live by it. We live on it. It feeds us, it waters us, it allows us to transport goods and ideas, and it is the primary, penultimate system which essentially um, uh, operates the world. I love it. This is music, you know, th this, is, this is what we talk about on this show. We, you know, it's the blue planet, and uh, the oceans really do drive earth systems a foundational aspect of what makes earth earth and uh just a foundational way to understand our climate and the systems that are driving it is all through the water part of the space well it's a continuum it's a it's the it's the freshwater ocean atmospheric continuum it's the water cycle that every young student learns all around the world it's a pretty simple concept to understand but in that simplicity is a complexity uh you know uh almost beyond the imagination of a god so you sit there and you say well it's simple uh and but it's it's not it's, it's static but it's not uh, it's it's uh, eternal, but it's not. So all of these things have been absent from our perspective on how we approach both the challenge and the solution. Even the word climate is, I think, a misnomer. I, I think it has now become a dead word. Uh, and the problem with it is, aside from just overuse, uh, you know, we consume the things we love, uh, but 
but it's because it, 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 it doesn't include the fact, it doesn't honor or respect the fact that climate is only a function of the ocean. If you look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you will see that the only one goal that pertains to all the others is water. The others can exist independently, and they do, and they represent a kind of silo thinking and organizational structure that characterizes our response to this time, to this date. And so when you look at the UN or when you look at the organization, uh, government structures and bureaucracies, when you look at um, the uh, the catalog of NGOs, you see them all operating within silos. And there is some interconnection, but for the most part, they are singly, single-minded, um, problem-directed uh, um, entities, which essentially are doing great work. I do not want to disparage the work they do. Not at all. We, every bit of it is necessary, and there's not enough. But when you see and you hear the Secretary General of the United Nations say after COP27 and other meetings that what we're doing is wonderful, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's too little, quote, too little, too late, unquote. And when I read that quotation in the press release after those meetings, I said, that's an existential cry for help. Interesting. Well, I, I just, I, I'm curious, Peter. Uh, 20 years ago, a sleeting, cold spring day in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, you are struck by lightning, so to speak, with this book. And uh, if you could give us a uh, data point of the state of affairs 20 years ago versus the mission that you're talking about, this integrated kind of understanding, social understanding of the interconnectedness and importance of a desiloed perspective of water on the planet. Uh, what would the compare and contrast from 20 years ago to today? Well, if you look at the sort of the basic elements, the first one, say, being science, um, you say in that 20 years, the growth in scientific inquiry of all things oceanic, uh, above water, alongshore, underwater, uh, etc., in almost every discipline has been off the charts. It has gone and gone up and up and up and up and again, and we learn more and more and more every day. But as you sit, as you always hear at the end of these these meetings, when the of the scientists, they always say, "Well, this is what we we know to date, but we need more data." And God bless them, they should have more data, and they should have more exploration, and they should have more resources. How can we possibly, as a, as a, as a country, for example, understand the Arctic or the Antarctic, or the Arctic particularly, when we have no, we have no icebreakers, we have no ice-rated research vessels? So the fact is that all of this stuff, if we have to really want to learn about it, we need to invest in it in a, in a way that represents a kind of national agenda, international emergency. And I want to put it, people say, Peter, you overstate, you're a doom, doom crier. I am not a pessimist. I am an optimist. I believe there is a solution. But what is missing are key elements. In, in, in elements in the solution of the problem. When I was at the Economist World Ocean Summit in Lisbon about six weeks ago, uh, eminent people all over the world looking at blue finance, looking at energy, looking at all kinds of things. You know, the brain trust was there. Um, and my question to them is, if we're all doing all this good and we're not making the progress that seems urgent and immediate, what is the thing we're not doing? And what we're not doing, my answer to that, um, uh, do it, is that, that, that if you ask me that compare and contrast question about the other side of what we're doing, science, A+, plus, education, communication, D-. minus. 
And when you look at the way that we communicate amongst ourselves, we are each either communicating within an echo chamber or we're communicating, uh, you know, parochially. We, we communicate to the coral reef people. We integrate to the whale people. We integrate to the shoreline people. We integrate to the, to the, to the various people, but we don't integrate between them. And so the whole communication system that is necessary to bring the information into the public, public sensibility, into the public mind, so that they can become what they, they already are de facto, but they don't know it, is a global community of citizens of the ocean. And they represent a political constituency of enormous power. But that's what's missing. We do not have the political will to actually break out of our conventions, break between uh, the, out of the silos, and start to looking at what is the reality of the solution, which, which, which demands relational connection. You can't talk about any one of these things apart. They are all part of a larger system and in that is part of a larger system still and so the whole complexity of the thing has to be acknowledged at the outset and built in not just to the science but built in to the communications and to the distribution of the knowledge that we've acquired which is part of the toolkit for meeting the challenge and you know, saving the world, may I say. Yeah. Unapologetically, I think uh, that's the assertion, is the centrality of the ocean environment and what it does in all ways, physically uh, to the planet, but also socially. Uh, as you said, it's described as an integrated global social system, a description of the ocean that is incredibly broad. And I liked your observation, Peter, that over the last 20 years, we've seen this massive expansion of scientific knowledge about the ocean with uh, the robotics and the technology and the information available uh, is has been incredibly uh, explosive. And yet, if you were to objectively look at the condition of the ocean itself, our relationship to it and how we manage it, is it hard to see uh, the progress of that work is it sounds like what you're saying is the framework, the framing of these uh, ocean and coastal issues into silos is preventing us from effectively addressing the challenges we face. Is there real power, I guess, in this broader framing of the issue that it is fundamental to human existence? It's fundamental to the health of the planet. That seems to be the to be the crux of, of, of the World Ocean Observatory perspective. That was what it was inherent in the Swarish report. That was what drew me to the um, to the to the opportunity. I came out of out of it uh, uh, from my prior career as the director of a, a, ma a maritime museum, national history museum about the impact of the ocean on on the on the impact of the ocean on a, on a major city, the city of New York, the state of New York, and the nation. Our history in the United States is as a maritime nation, and all the basic themes of our formation and our continuity still are connected to that particular natural system. So what, as an historian, this blew my mind open because I was looking at it the way historians often do, from a silo. And it suddenly said to me, Peter, you can get out of this and you can essentially break out of this. And if you can start to, to articulate this relational uh, imperative, then you'll be able to essentially enlist the hundreds of thousands of allies, the millions of allies that are out there that will allow us to address convention, vested interest, um, political ignorance, uh, uh, general indifference and fear of change, all of these elements which are impeding our progress can be broken apart. 
That is a big job. I've always been impressed by World Ocean Observatory. And for those of you who are listening on a laptop, worldoceanobservatory.org is the site. And it's worth a look as you listen to this conversation. It's incredibly impressive in terms of the breadth and scope of the information that you compile, respond to. I'm a huge fan of World Ocean Radio, and I'm so glad that, Peter, we have a chance to carry that on ASPN. It's absolutely fabulously done. And uh, But the question I want to ask you is when we create, the goal here to create these World Ocean citizens, people who are empowered and who understand the relational connections that uh, are at issue here. Um, how do you go from that greater awareness and greater understanding into effective action to change what we're doing? In other words, it comes down to, does it not at some level, to our institutional capacity to act. Can you talk about that? Well, yes, I certainly can talk about that, but I think you we don't want to gloss over the first part. Um, you have to create the, the, the audience. You have to build out and create a kind of megaphonic uh, structure that allows you to whisper into the entity, whis- whisper into the computer, and essentially distribute this um, information in all formats and at a relentless repetition. repetition. So World Ocean Observatory catalogs resources. And they're all there on the site. We, uh, but we, our primary purpose is to communicate and we have multiple platforms. So we have World Ocean Radio, which is syndicated and is as, as and also as a podcast. We have our site itself, a million millions of users who come and visit. We have um, we have an aggregated video channel. Uh, we have a digital magazine, uh, which we're now going to modify slightly into a visual visualization anthology about ocean solutions. We have World Ocean Forum, which is posts and reposts by people. Of, of, of innovative ideas um, uh, and challenges to the conventional thinking. Uh, we have a film festival. We have publications. We have now the World Ocean Aquarium, a World Ocean Explorer, which is a virtual aquarium in which we will allow people to come in and enter a virtual space on any device, anywhere, at any time, at no cost, no barrier to entry. So we will democratize the information in a way that the NGOs or the museums or the aquariums cannot do. It's not that they don't want to do, but they can only reach an audience within certain parameters. And that's the best they can do. And I'm saying we need to get way outside of those delimitations. And you do that because the computer and the internet allows you to speak with almost anybody, anywhere, at any time. And so without that platform, those platforms in space, and without the capacity of the communication power of the internet, and without the substance that you feed into it according to some kind of order or plan, uh, you won't make any difference at all. I totally agree. And uh, it's actually one of the things that I think you do so well, Peter, is the organization of it, because uh, that's really the hard part. I mean, the in, you're right, like the internet does allow us to aggregate and uh, create a portal for ocean information and ocean storytelling. Uh, the hard part is structuring it. And I just have to say uh, that uh, over the past 20 years, you guys have done just an incredible job, not only beefing up and fleshing out this incredible platform, but it's organized in a way that makes sense. And uh, you, there are lots of different ways to interface with this thing. Um, and what I want to talk about a little bit is uh, World Ocean Radio, which, as Peter Ravella said, we carry on ASPN and we are so stoked to have it. Uh, Peter Neal, your voice and the way that you talk about the ocean is just inc- is just so cool. Um, and uh, we picked up 
coverage of World Ocean Radio with the commencement of your rescue series. We started with Rescue Point one, uh, Part 1. Would you introduce and frame up what the rescue series is and talk a little bit about what it is you're doing with this series? Well, <laughs> I will. Uh, rescue started only 18 editions ago. Um, uh, there are... 660 um, editions of World Ocean Radio uh, that have been previously broadcast. 660. So we um, could continue to do that along the way, uh, and and that's fine. That's great. We 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 get tremendous extension from those that that format and its and its distribution. Uh, there's no question about it. But after this COP27 and after these meetings, and when I heard the Secretary General of the UN say too little, too late, uh, I said to myself, well, the problem is that we may be inhibited, indeed even paralyzed, from essentially having a plan that will make a difference. When you look at the fact that most nations don't have, including the U.S., don't have a national ocean plan. At one point, we had two. Uh, President Biden recently put out something that purports, I think, to be a new one. But the the planning effort, the based on the kind of philosophical perspective that I've been talking about, actually only ref- it doesn't exist. It only reflects the 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 silo orientation. And so it says, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Within the existing framework of the bureaucracy, the funding, the legislation, and all the rest, uh, the UN has the same problem. They have become concretized uh, by institutional um, rigidity, and they are caught in a in a complicated trap. I, I don't think they may have had any other way to do it, but the question now is, can they open themselves up to change enough so that they can break open the kind of concretized um, uh, stasis that we, 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 we're in? Uh, and just let me add one more thing before I tell you about rescue. Um, it doesn't take all the money in the world. I constantly hear, oh, oh my God, we don't have the resource, we don't have the resource. World Ocean Observatory has existed on 20 years with two people. We have no office. We have only energy, imagination, and the, and the support of a small number of prescient, generous donors that keep us going. And those people see that this is not only a kind of transformational idea, it's a transformational organization. And that, that, so why then do we presume to do something to be able to say, well, we need a plan, the world needs a plan. Why would the ocean, World Ocean Observatory presume to offer one? And my argument was, well, just like the people that I said in 20 years ago, they didn't say no. They said, why not? And so that, to me, is the kind of license to imagine and to, to think these issues through in this framework that exists outside of the concretization. So I wrote uh, an outline of a plan of where to begin and how we should uh, approach this thing, uh, the, the, a new way of addressing all of these issues. The rubric is res- rescue, R for renewal, E for environment, S for society, C for collaboration, U for understanding, and E for engagement clever enough, but each one of those words is an attribute that has to be um, has to be energized so that we can talk interrelationally interrelationally that's a word, among ourselves uh, and and to embrace these, these new ideas. So uh, 
the, the 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 part of it right now that I'm working on is is ocean finance, and there's a whole series of things that you know we're talking about the blue economy all the time, and there's all this venture startups and all these good things of young people trying to invent new new shortcuts or new ideas or new systems or new products. All of it is fantastic. It's great, but there is a again there's a fundamental limitation within the consciousness of the our awareness of the financial structure that we we that we live in we the paradigm has has been unlimited growth you know fired by consumption you know enabled by fossil fuels that's it 19th 20th 21st century that's it and the history has been that, and we are now facing the consequences. Okay, we're smart. We, 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 we begin to understand more immediately, day by day, storm by storm, drought by drought, war by war. It all comes down to the fact that we have exhausted the land by essentially practicing that 19th century paradigm. Woo! So you, ha- you have to change the paradigm. So we're talking about, we are talking about a global transformation of society. I mean, to be completely honest, we move away from a growth-based, consumption-based, fossil fuel-driven economic system, uh, our relationship to the entire planet, terrestrial and oceanic. That's an amazing uh, agenda. And and. It, not one that sounds fanciful to me. It's an accurate assessment of the kind of transformative thinking that we are on the cusp of attempting. So the question I have is, as you free yourself, as we, as we move into this frame of reference, which is not rigid, not bounded by structural bureaucracy, statutory framing, uh, financial devices and financial structures, but move into this more, I guess we would say, open and free uh, area to re-examine what we are doing as human beings. As we try to step into that that space, Peter, what would you, how would you define the, you know, the problem? I don't know where to begin here, but how do you, how do you begin the conversation on the transfer, transformation what is the principal objective of this different idea? Where does it lead us if we are successful? Well, we, we organize our lives around values. Uh, the values are applied through structures, and the structures dictate, dictate behaviors. So that little formula, values to structures to behaviors, if you look at how the paradigm is expressed – we have values that are, have been affirmed by the by the by the paradigm: um, uh, consumption as measured by gross domestic product. Uh, is, uh, for example, uh, these are all things that essentially are systems of value, and that value then finds its its reality through structures, and then those structures enable all kinds of related. Uh, uh, behaviors. Okay, that's fine. And people, people have said to me, "Well, Peter, you're a communist. You're there. no, not at all. Capital is just another word for value, uh, and you, it's a question of how you define capital. So, if you were to say, uh, if you were to look at the capital asset value of nature, which we don't, we do exactly the opposite." But if we suddenly were to do that and see the net asset value of natural systems and incorporate that into our calculations, uh, into our standards and practices of accounting and evaluating uh, the, the true cost of goods and services, and if we were to apply those to balance sheets and risk analyses and all these kinds of things, um, we would, if we were to allocate incentives and uh, create a kind of, of 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 new system of regulatory structure that would enable this new new recognition 
that 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 we we cannot exhaust the asset value of nature, and that's what we have done on the land. Agree, uh, but I also uh, I'm reminded of. A, another conversation that we had on this very show, we were talking with Jim Blackburn of the Texas coast and Jim, you know, cause I think this gets a little bit into politics <laughs> guys, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it turns into a, if, if, if the evolution of our society becomes too disruptive to the status quo, and I realize that what you describe is a total transformation. But like what we're talking about here is metamorphosis and like how do we do it? How do we change? Because what we've seen before is that the minute you start to rock the boat or suggest that uh, a, an interest group modify its balance sheet, if, as you will, uh, it, we 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 cease to be ground. I mean, we, we, we will do anything. We'll start to believe in conspiracy theory. Well, wait, we'll, but, we'll go down the road of denial. Uh, so, so we are going to not talk about politics. Politics is only, um, the interaction of different interests. It's the confrontation of different interests. And this country is, has a, a kind of definitive interest system of interests that have has guided us to the point we are now and you can look at within the energy sector for example you can look at a kind of of a prolongation of recognition of what is actually going on you have oil companies that subverted the information given them by their own researchers you have fracking which allowed for um, the extension and the recovery of, 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 of another 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the energy resources that were not were not being recovered by the by the the traditional system uh, and you have you have exploration uh, of, of a constant exploration for to try to, to discover new resources now no longer available on land but only available on uh, um, in underwater and offshore. So what is happening is two things. One is happening is that the old value system is breaking down in and of itself. It's like a dinosaur that's sinking into the mud. And many people don't want it to die. That's fine. That's fair. That's who they are. That's fine. But one by one by one, they will come up against the reality of some consequence as a result of the perpetuation of that system. So if you want to look at your shoreline property inundated, if you want to look at your, your farm destroyed by drought or by extreme weather or by pests, if you want to look at the poisoning of your agricultural land by fracking waste and pesticides, if you want to look at your shellfish uh, and um, uh, coastal fisheries destroyed by algae blooms and all the rest of it that comes from climate, uh, heat, uh, sea level uh, temperature rise, uh, and all the rest. Each and every one of those situations is a confrontation that says to any individual holding any position, wait, you need to think about it, and in your own self-interest, be open to change. It's a common phrase that Tyler and I talk about on this show, which is reality is a persistent teacher. And as you're saying, the decision-making that we have been engaged in has consequences. And sooner or later, the consequences become clear and perhaps unbearable, uh, which drives can drive change. Um, Peter, I want to ask a question about, about looking at this kind of transformation, maybe not globally, but on a more... Uh, maybe on a scale that we can find traces of or traces, evidence, uh, indications that this kind of transformative thinking is p possible. 
Um, and I, in, in framing this question, I have a hard time not sort of hearkening back to uh, the tragedy of the commons concept from William Foster Lloyd, the British economist, um, in the mid-1800s. In other words, this idea that we have a responsibility to treat the commons in a different way is not brand new. When you look around, do you see evidence that we can make this kind of transformation in our relationship to the natural world? Well, yes, uh, you, 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 you see it. Um, the commons theory on land um, is um, is dead on arrival, although you have in the small local and state conservation, environmental conservation uh, efforts, which are burgeoning, uh, and organizations that are now trying to capture back land that is common for the for the for the utility, the recreational or what uh, utility or the carbon sequestration or whatever it may be uh, that serves all all people uh, all time. You you see efforts like that. Uh, you see in the ocean you have this structure of of territorial limits uh, where you have national national limits and then you have this enormous area of the ocean that's outside of national jurisdictions, that is a commons. And you do see in legislation and policy and UN treaty pre presentations and things like that, an effort to get people to understand that, that we all in the commons have a responsibility and we can't can't apply um, if it's there. It's uh, we can take it without understanding that you're taking it for yourself, but from someone else. And so that can be managed, uh, and that can be managed in some cases by a simple shift of a national agenda. And so some countries that are indifferent to any kind of limitation or enforcement or conservation practices within the, uh, the, 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 the open ocean, or worse, actually encourage illegal activities, if those, if those countries can be persuaded that that is not in their interest one way or another, even if it's only that they're going to fish it out, and then even in their selfishness, they will have no supply. So the, there, there are arguments to be made that in some cases, leaders can hear and they can take incremental steps to essentially uh, approach these solutions in kind of a tessellated, faceted way um, uh, to take a bite at a time and change a policy here, add a regulation here, add a subsidy or an incentive here. You know, the fishing fleet in the United States was at one size until we decided to subsidize, subsidize fishing vessels. And then we created a fleet of fishing, fishing vessels that on the East Coast fished out the cod, fished out the shrimp. And so you sit there and you say, well, it, we, we created the problem ourselves. We had no perspective that allowed for some kind of conservation ethic or ethos to determine how we were going to manage these resources. And of course, you know, the perspective of the people back then was that really, I mean, really that the earth itself was kind of an inexhaustible resource. I mean, I think it's really quite new uh, to think about the planet in in the sense that it, it is a finite space it's kind of a new thing i mean certainly culturally uh going we've talked before peter you know i, I think going to space and the photographs from uh, of the earth just a little marble out there in space i think that that really did change the way people thought think about uh our place on the planet and uh, the other thing that I, I thank you for bringing up, uh, Peter Neal, is this treaty uh, and the word biodiversity. I, I think uh, earlier, Peter Neal, you said that climate is a dead word. 
uh, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. Although I I do agree that it's a tired word, <laughs> and I think biodiversity has the potential this to to really be it's it's a newborn to me. It's there's there's a lot of potential in in using uh, the idea of biodiversity uh, in in understanding human impacts on the planet as opposed to just climate and carbon. Well, yeah, I I would agree. And I think that, uh, you know, when you're talking about the open ocean, um, when you're talking about marine resources in general, they have been the habitat, uh, the, the, the habitat uh, for the, the reproduction and the safety, the conservation of, of biodiversity forever. And it is true that people are becoming more aware of that. Uh, you're right in the history of the history of, of ideas in the world. Um, this sort of sudden understanding of the limits of the earth, and particularly the limits of the earth, earth as demonstrated by the by the exhaustion of the land, that in the space of intellectual time is a nanosecond. But the fact is that as, the, as our ideas um, accelerate, as our knowledge accelerates, as our tools for communication accelerate, so too do the consequences accelerate. And so the urgency is no longer a word that is sort of quietly uh, alarmist. Um, it's something that actually can start to be can start to be plotted out. We can plot out goals through 2030 or 2050, but when you start looking and projecting the outcomes with no address to certain phenomena already documented, those two are on very, very short deadlines. So by the time we figure it out, it may be too late and then too late again and then too late again. Sounds a little bit like what the United Nations chairman had to say in Is It Too Little Too Late? Um, one of the concepts I've been thinking about lately, uh, Peter Neal, is this notion of uh, what I'm thinking about is remnants, that at this point in the history of the planet, if we look around, um, we are working very hard to uh, protect and perhaps sustain and improve remnants of the natural world. There is, I, I don't know if that's too pessimistic, but at 8 billion people on the planet in the last century and a half, um, we, it's, it's, I think it's fair to say we have devastated uh, so many natural systems on the planet. Um, do you feel like there is enough left if we can effectively organize uh, to really restore the ecological health and function of these systems, or is it the 21st century, sort of the beginning of the end? I don't, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I'm saying there is not. You know, we're, we're down, you live up there in Maine. We're talking about there's 340 maybe North Atlantic right whales left. We're struggling to see if we can come up with some basic uh, rules of the road in terms of the lobster fishery and other activities that affect these animals. Um, and it's an extremely heavy lift. Uh, but what we're fighting over here is a remnant population that is on its last legs. I mean, is there enough left for us to effectively respond to? Well, the only answer to that, lads, is yes. Um, and you do have to. We do have to 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 understand that it is that the ocean is a, is a not only is it a a commons, it's a heat pump. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a, a, a growth um, medium. Uh, it can feed us. It can um, provide us salt water. It can provide us energy. It can provide us, and it can provide us, as it has done for centuries, a kind of ind individual, psychological, even community solace. But the point is that those systems within that system exist, and they're struggling. I mean, I, I registered this morning for an OTEC conference, uh, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion. The ocean is a heat pump. There is in the ocean the potential, 
as heat pumps have revolutionized heating systems in a changing world uh, of, of fossil fuel uh, uh, depleting world, you have a heat pump, which is a technology which is pretty simple and which is revolutionizing heating and cooling. Well, the ocean is a cosmic heat pump. And it, the technology has existed. It's been resisted and undermined and ridiculed for years. But the fact is that unlike wave energy or any of these other things, it sits there as a kind of eternal um, um, opportunity to use the differential baked into the, 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 the inherent in the natural system, the, the temperature of the within the water column, as a source for energy that would allow us not only to heat and cool, but to desalinate water. Now, those two things, three things, are the as much as the as anything else. Then add aquaculture, and by aquaculture, I don't necessarily mean the the old idea of the floating pen and all the rest of it. But aquaponics, aquaculture, using the ocean as a medium for growth and food at a scale that is going to be able to meet the demands of 8 billion people, 30 or 40% already rely on fish as their primary source of protein. That's, that potential is there. But it's going to require imagination and innovation and a willingness of people to understand that it's in their best interest and their greatest possible return to do this, not to subvert it, not to pull NIMBY, NIMBY objections uh, because this might spoil their view. It's not acceptable to do that in a, uh, to that kind of individualism to, to exist in a world as interconnected, interrelated, and in extremis as this, the one we live in. Okay. Okay. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I want to... I want uh, you to disagree. Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, what I want to do, uh, Peter Neal, is to get your assessment of the state of the con conversation. And I, I guess what I'm looking for is the Peter Neal ocean media assessment uh, because what you're talking about is and what you are describing uh, wonderfully is a different type of ocean space uh, you're not the first person by any means to like articulate this no way um, but you are uh, you are doing it <laughs> and um, I, what is your assessment I mean like when when I turn on uh, CNN for example or even you know National Geographic magazines and, th and th you know, I, I I have to say that I find that we are still thinking about the ocean um, in terms of maybe specific phenomena, which is wonderful. I, I and I I'm so glad that we have you know every article that we have on North Atlantic right whales and all of that is is important. But uh, give me the Peter Neal media assessment, Peter. I'd I'd love to know what you think about where we are now. Well, the, the, the same problem, the siloization of the media is the same problem where they are essentially uh, competing. They are uh, independent entities that are competing not for advertisers and for consumers, for readers. Uh, they um, have always been organized to buy departments or by, by um, breaking news, or by uh, opinion, uh, or by sports, or by all these things. So they've tried to be all things to all people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. But if you look at the, the world catalog of communications organizations in the world, right, I would argue there's only one, one, that has done, has gone all in. Uh, and that's the Guardian newspaper in, in England. And they made about three years ago a, a, an editorial shift in which they said, yeah, we're going to report the news, we're going to do this, but one of our primary missions is to, is to educate the world about the pressing environmental issues that we face. And almost every day, 
that group, that staff, that those journalists are producing really good, well-researched, sometimes investigative stories that, that are must-reads. And so I, I, I repost those stories constantly. The Economist magazine has its own uh, ocean interest. It takes shape in these meetings that they've had over the last, I don't know, 10 years maybe, in which they bring together ocean people. But in the magazine itself, there are only occasional articles about one particular issue that may, within the context of the the previous week, may be newsworthy. If you look at the television networks, the only other thing that's out there might be the BBC slash uh, PBS, and that's primarily David Attenborough. Um, you know, the, 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 my whole generation in, in, ocean, in, the ocean, in ocean interest was Cousteau. And we all grew up with the, you know, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And we all decided in some way or another that the sea was important to us and we were able to be this, that, and the other thing. So the, that the, the David Attenborough series, uh, as expensive and, and in some ways unreal as they are, just because they are so extraordinarily beautiful, um, are tremendous tools of communication because they, they, they address the 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 emotions. I just did a, a, a new little book uh, that just came out last week, which is just a series of eight or ten little essays that is called Oceanic Feeling, and 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 my books have been repertorial, and then they have been uh, uh, sort of more uh, focused. Uh, uh, incrementally and I suddenly realized well I should write something that really is about feelings about how the the fact is that fundamentally when anyone goes to the sea and they stand by there and they are confronted with uh, this this amazing thing whether they grew up by the sea or like me were born in St. Louis Missouri as far from the ocean as you could possibly be you are transformed by beauty movement you know, sensual re- responses, um, and the and the uh, and the and a sense of mystery uh, that is elevating and inspiring, and addresses all of our anxieties and all the rest. Um, you don't get that necessarily on the dude ranch, but you do get it on the public beach. And so my argument is that that the the that 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 connection lies at the heart of everything we've been talking about today, all of it. It is essentially that in every one of us, there is this realization that we are a body of water and we have a natural um, solution. We are essentially part of a great cosmic solution. And I'm arguing that if we can understand that power and convert it to values, structures, and behaviors, then the great nat- natural asset that is the ocean will be absolutely uncompromisable. We wouldn't confront it or poison it or waste it for anything in the world because it is the source of our vitality. You know, I think Tyler and I feel the same way. And, and it's been one of the great things about doing a podcast and to talking to professionals who dedicate their lives to this issue area um, in whatever capacity, whatever silo. Uh, you are quite right. And I think accurately capture something that we've noticed, um, kind of a universal uh, concept of, of people who, who work in this issue is that intrinsic emotional connection to what is at stake. Uh, It is truly built in. Uh, I do think it's kind of deeply genetic and deeply cultural for humans. And it's from that point of inspiration, maybe that we get smarter and we get better. You know, the conventional uh, response is, oh, the leader will provide. Uh, And in certain instances, the leader does provide. But great leadership in almost any entity, where, where, whether you're in, 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 in the world of thought or the world of science or the world of politics, 
is not as great as it might be. We, we kind of consume our leaders. Um, but the fact is that we're, we're, we're looking for that kind of um, uh, impetus that uh, will allow us to follow. And my argument is that where we're seeing change the most is the, in the exact opposite direction. It's from the bottom up and it's from the inside out. And so in the communities uh, where people are coming together and they're suddenly realizing that this marsh or this river or this bed or this view or this forest or this endangered species matters and it matters more than other things. And so therefore we want to make sure that in our community we're not being um, pig-headed. We want to be open-minded, but we want to understand that the value system will enable, will protect first, but enable also. So that when people come in with a solar farm, or when people want to come and build a desal plant, or even if we if we want to put solar um, panels on our roofs, and we have a national grid that cannot accommodate our success, the national grid in the United States being a cosmic embarrassment. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it's just yeah, right. outrageous. And the utilities should be held account because we gave them the responsibility and they have not lived up to it. They're waiting for federal money. They're getting some. My point is that the, the ability of the grid, the distribution system, not only to increase if, uh, efficiency, not only to better economy, not only to be a storage system for <clears throat> electricity generated in our new electrical world <clears throat> from any source, that is something that is away from the ocean. But it is essential because you can do everything you want to on the coast, but if you can't distribute the outcome, mm -hmm then you're, you're, you're essentially, again, closing your mind, jump, dump, you know, retreating to the balance sheet, saying it's not my responsibility, um, shareholders don't care, uh, all banks won't finance, government fights it over and it and it's only goes to places where people care the most. It's, 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 it's really um, the crux of the matter is that 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 the, the the creation of the political will is the thing that will make things happen? The example I use down here is the plastic bag. The state of Maine removed plastic bags from our economy in what a year, one year, all from the bottom up and the inside out. People said no plastic bags. Supermarkets responded. Now it's packaging, and and consumers are saying, no, I don't want plastic. I don't want this. I don't want that. Or uh, you know, you have to respond. The market says. So the fact is, in a capitalist world, you can use the market for good, and that's a that is a way that you can through political influence, the voting the voting booth, boycotts you know, alternative uses invented and promoted. There are all these things that are happening in bits and pieces all around the United States and all around Europe and all around Asia and all around the world. And those things are happening, but they're below the line. You know, they don't get a story uh, necessarily in the, in, on CNN. Sometimes they do. And it's a, it's a lovely thing. But it's that that, that energy which is truly democratic, uh, is, is the, the outcome of the, the, the generator that is the, is the human value uh, of life and our will to live. So well said. So for those of you out there listening and who have the courage and the curiosity to abandon sort of the rigidity of our way of thinking about the ocean and are willing to move into a, a, a different understanding, the place to start is worldoceanobservatory.org. That's Peter Neal's uh, website, the World Ocean Explorer, which is the virtual aquarium uh, developed in, in association with the Schmidt Ocean Institute is absolutely extraordinary. 
That's worldoceanexplorer.org. Peter, we so much appreciate the courage of your perspective and the freedom of which you're thinking differently and new about the challenges ahead. It's such a treat to share that perspective with our folks on our, our listeners on ASPN. So, you know, my last, my last, yeah, last word, word is on my last word. It's not within the ocean observatory. It's within each organization and within each person that the change has to take place. And once you've resolved to make that change and abandon all the excuses to, to, uh, uh, to not to do otherwise, then you have the power. And that power will find, you know, a, a foot soldier on the left and a foot soldier on the right. And we have all the tools to execute um, in hand. And so it's to me where I can be, make a contribution is up here in this idea of tilting the windmill, you know, standing up to the windmill and saying, you know what, this is not right. There's a better, another, uh, a, a, a democratic and uh, rewarding way uh, to, to embrace change. Extremely wonderfully well said. Uh, for those of you who want to learn more about how Peter Neal approaches these kinds of issues, you'll find it on World Ocean Radio, which is carried on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, issue uh, the rescue series is these are five minute shows they're absolutely great in an hour you can catch up with all of the shows that are on ASPN right now in an hour the rescue series from from World Ocean Radio check it out on on ASPN and Coastal News today uh, Peter Neal thank you so much director uh, and founder of the World Ocean Observatory we can't thank you enough and uh, we always look forward to having you back on so we'll be We'll be looking forward to touching base with you down the line. Then a boy, take one, brother.